first we've talked since Thanksgiving. I know. How was your Thanksgiving? No time, John. Not the to talk about. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Because over our Thanksgiving break, we, we saw many a movie. Indeed. And after this little vacation, this little hiatus, that this one-week hiatus that you imposed upon us, because um, <laughs> you were just too shiftless. I was I, ready to talk about. I'm always ready to talk about movies. You, on I, the other hand, I have I have grad school right now. I'm just I'm working like crazy. Oh, no, I'm just oh, so boo-hoo. busy. So, so let's busy. talk about the movies we watched. <laughs> All right, let's do that. Uh, we got we got a few, and thankfully we didn't have to show up to the theater every single time. Thankfully, some of the movies came to us. Absolutely, because. Um, John, I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but we're survivalists here, <laughs> and I just okay. wanted a taste of that cool, cool water. <laughs> mm. That's right. We're talking about the Netflix original. The Coen brothers are back, folks. Back again. <laughs> Greg, they never left. That's true. Because well, it's a back of the first time in two years, but anyway. <laughs> exactly. But we finally caught up with the ballad of Buster Scruggs. People are so easily distracted. So I'm the distractor with a little story. People can't get enough of them. Because, well, they connect the stories to themselves, I suppose. And we all love hearing about ourselves. So long as the people in the stories are us. But not us. This will tale to tale. Buster Scruggs. You're shooting ironwork. Appears to do, yes. Cool, cool water. <laughs> now, Greg, what, like, what were your, what were your initial thoughts when you first heard about this project? Like an anthology series, six little short stories. Like, were you, well, were you excited for I, the prospect? Uh, no, because. This was always a Netflix original, mm-hmm. and I thought it was going to be a limited series, as in six hour-long episodes. Yeah. However, I got a little, even more nervous when they said, like, no, actually, it's a movie, <laughs> <laughs> and it was going to be an anthology of these short films, um, which are always uneven. Like, the, any, any, if you regard any anthology film, it's always a little hit or miss. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a little nervous, especially when I consider also, I won't say production trouble, but also the time it took for them to complete uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Mm. Initially, that movie was supposed to come out in, I believe it can, 2012. Instead, it was pushed back a year. And to, to my mind, it still doesn't feel like a complete story. And I, I was worried that <laughs> this film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, would uh, kind of feel the exact same way. Um, I'm happy to report it didn't. <laughs> the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is awesome. And I loved every little every little moment and piece of, piece of uh, Coen Brothers quirkiness <laughs> that mm. the movie elicited. So... I, I personally I personally adored it, but uh, it's fair to say this movie probably isn't for everybody. <laughs> Believe it or not, no, uh, yeah. because it is bleak as hell. Yeah, that, well, there is that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we should probably explain that this is six little vignettes um, set in the old Wild West. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've wanted to tell these stories, however, they knew there was kind of no kind of th- there, they knew there was no theatrical way to do it. Um, so they put this little anthology together and Netflix was generous enough with their, uh, with their money and distribution model to uh, distribute it. Mm-hmm. Um, but John, dare I say, and this is not something that you hear an awful lot from critics, <laughs> <laughs> but each of these six little stories, let me tell you, 
They could stand alone as their own feature film. They're that no, good. <laughs> no, they can't. <laughs> no, they can't. <laughs> maybe one, like maybe three or four of them can, but there's two in particular I'm thinking that could not like be a full length feature. Uh, okay. Should we go step by step for each story? I suppose. Uh, the opening I, I one. I suppose. Is... Yeah. I mean, I, I've 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 given my thoughts. I mean, I've obviously oh, adored oh, this oh. movie. You. Oh. Uh, uh, this is the best movie I've seen all year. I love this movie. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> yeah, outstanding. <laughs> and again, like are... going in, going in, I was expecting like a certain, I would have a certain, like a serious man appreciation about this movie, which is like, all right, I like what you did, but it's not fun to watch. But this movie, despite being bleak as hell, is still a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> and I just love the attention to detail and just all the craft. This it's It's based on like, or the whole idea behind the whole anthology thing is that it's a collection of short stories, so it literally has, like, the storybook opening, almost like a 1940s, like, Disney movie. And yeah. you can read, and it's, like, it's not just, like, lorem ipsum, or just, like, it, like every little word is, like, perfectly <laughs> chosen. Like, it could actually yeah. work as a short story collection. Yes. Um, you, when you say lorem ipsum, you mean kind of a filler type. Um, exactly. They it's nonsense. It's nonsense words and language to basically fill in that's supposed to stand in for a final copy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I mean, there, there are these beautiful illustrations that are called plates, I think, mm-hmm. um, that kind of signal what's going to happen in the story ahead. Yep. But yeah, you turn to the opening page and it's, and it's kind of magnificently written um, text. <laughs> That introduce the story, and then we get into the stories, and yes, as as you said, they all they all end bleakly, mm. um, but it is a delightful road to that final final termination in death and despair. <laughs> Starting well, with our very first our, our eponymous story, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yes, that is the opening one, and I would say it's probably the least bleak, although it is pretty bleak based I, on the number. No, of... no, no. We'll get, we'll get to that. We'll no. We'll get to the the most affirmative one later. All right. Um, involving a gold prospector, but oh, um, yes. okay. Tone wise, yeah, yeah. Tone wise, the story is a is a, is a jaunty and sets you up for the enjoyability, the fun, rollicking times ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one seems like it's kind of got a meta quality to it because even though this is a collection of short stories from a book. I think they're also making a comment about like Hollywood legendization of the Old West, and this one especially because you've got Buster Scruggs, who is just this in this perfectly pressed white suit, who just kind of like yeah. walks into any scenario, and no matter what happens, he always comes out clean on the other side. <laughs> there's this great yeah. Uh, it, there's this great moment where he walks into a saloon, everyone pauses to look at this fucking weirdo, and he just dusts yeah. himself off, and it's a perfect <laughs> silhouette of where he was standing, of smoke just billowing out mm-hmm. uh yeah it buster scruggs is played by tim blake nelson he's singing mm-hmm. like a jaunty tune he's got he's got a permanent he's got a, a smile permanently fixed on his face mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh he's riding through monument valley obviously now the most cliche location you can have for any western movie mm-hmm. and you're right um he's got this very jaunty disposition despite holding up and you're right about the kind of mythologizing of the west he's he's a wanted man technically exactly and he's and he's got a number of nicknames including the misanthrope <laughs> and it's but not he doesn't hate first. his fellow man yeah. <laughs> uh, now, but John, he has been known to uh, break a few statutes of the of the county, <laughs> as well as the laws of God. <laughs> so that's what's also great is the, the kind of the looping, uh, as the kind of loopy quality of the dialogue in this opening in this opening short, mm-hmm. um, including including my favorite joke in the whole movie. There are because it is a, a comedy as well, oh, partially a comedy as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, as you said, he walks into this cantina, asks for whiskey, and the bartender, the the uh, gruff uh, 
rough and tumble bar counter, uh, excuse me, barkeep says uh, whiskey's illegal, <laughs> and then he points out the other. Well, what are they drinking? Whiskey. <laughs> Yes, and so basically, uh, it's not a very deep story. It's basically even shorter little vignettes of Buster Scruggs getting into these little uh, hairy situations, but he always, you know, figures out a way to get out of them, you know, without any kind of harm harm to himself, but inflicting horrible, horrible yes. torture to his fellow man. <laughs> yeah, but he does it in style, not oh, just in course. his white press suit. But he's got he's got obviously perfect guns gunslinging skills as well. Yeah, um, exactly, and again, there's that great contrast with you know he's got a shiny. Hot, you know, jaunty disposition, but can blow away his fellow man without a second like glance. <laughs> he gets into a shootout, and you know he's he's kind of showing off a little bit. He's he's looking at him through a mirror, and he's like, hmm, "Better be careful with this one." So he just shoots all five of his fingers <laughs> off of his drawing yeah. gun. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because it does the story kind of escalates. I mean, first he takes out uh, these kind of uh, gruff, unlikable, pretty nasty guys. Mm-hmm. Following that, uh, the, the hairiest situation where there's a guy named Curly Joe. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, Surly Joe. There's a CD <laughs> under the Curly, so it's Curly and Surly. I like, yes. I, I like that little touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, played by Clancy Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a gun where Buster Scruggs does not, and does this in the most cartoonish touch, does this ridiculous, um, kicks the table up and launches the gun into the guy's head and shoots him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But following that, I'm glad you mentioned the scene where he shoots the guy's fingers off because that guy is actually Curly Joe's brother. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's as Buster Scruggs points out, he's literally grieving. And unlike the other characters, like, he's not gruff. He's not completely unlikable. Like, we, mm-hmm. I don't think we want to see him die. Exactly. And it's our first signal that, yes, Buster Scruggs is a, a bit of a misanthrope. Um, <laughs> and maybe... Um, the fact that he also breaks the fourth wall with his narration and, and speaks directly to camera also speaks to how maybe some like twist on the genre and how um, misanthropic and ugly the Western genre could be. You killed my brother, you cowardly son of a bitch. Gunned him down when he wasn't hardly looking. Now I can cut you a little slack, grieving as you are, but the fact is, Buster Scruggs don't shoot nobody in the back. And that sorry sack of bones was more in the nature of a suicide. Here, Buster Scruggs, the West Texas twit. I assume you meant West Texas tit, on account of that particular bird's mellifluous warble. Call yourself any damn name you please. I want to see you outside. Wear an iron! Things have a way of escalating out here in the West with one thing leading to another, but I should be able to make pretty short work of this ramified old son of a gun. Partner, I had to strap on my tool belt. Are you ready? Ready! Are you set? Set! Do you need a count? Yes, sir! Yeah! Hard to trigger with them other fingers, but... <laughs> you can't be too careful. That scene is so great because after he kills Surly Joe, uh, you know, he's like, well, that you know, the tension's relieved, and he he breaks out into song, and everyone starts rousing. But then his brother comes in and starts like shaking. It's like, what? He's dead. What are you all doing? Yeah. <laughs> It's so funny, and uh, like all the rest of the stories, Buster Scruggs sadly comes, to, you know, his life comes to an end as well. But it's mm-hmm. it's it's more of a kind of passing on of the torch. He he gets challenged to another duel, and of course, because his devil may care attitude, he thinks he's going to get out of it just fine. But it turns out yeah. he doesn't. 
but even even though he gets shot in the head, he kind of like again like a Looney Tune like kind of takes it in as like oh shoot, didn't yeah. plan on that <laughs> happening, and then he just kind of falls over and dies and and gets whisked away as an angel. He gets his harp and his wings. <laughs> yeah, it's all very Speak, cartoon as like a uni, as yeah Looney Tune. It does end a little poignantly because uh, there's a little voiceover narration at the very end mm-hmm. and where he hopes that the land becomes civilized or something or that this violence abates at some point because mm-hmm. like otherwise what are all these like uh jolly songs about you know? mm. <laughs> so i think i think again it's kind of a, a a subversion of the western narrative and and trying to speak to that a little bit exactly um, and just um, the whole the whole conception of a character like buster scruggs obviously comes from a hollywood production not like the real wild west that's that's true yeah. um Unfortunately, none of the other films, <laughs> I say unfortunately, <laughs> not to say that the other films aren't great, but none of them even approach the cartoonist, uh, jovial nature of this first of this first short. Yeah, so the next one I actually liked the least. The next one mm. has James Franco, and uh, I, don't, I can't remember the title of it, but he gets basically caught trying to rob a bank. Uh, Stephen Root is the bank teller. And, yeah, uh, that's the only... Yeah, I, I, and to contradict what I said earlier, <laughs> that's the only that's the only matching of the tone with the first one. Stephen Root, in his inimitable style, <laughs> plays this quirky bank teller like, "Oh, shirks, oh yeah, <laughs> been robbed twice. You <laughs> waited for the marshal to come in weeks, you know, <laughs> oh, crazy business." Um, but <laughs> you're right; it really follows James Frank James Franco, this bank robber, who first is going to get um, hung for his crimes. Excuse me, hanged um, exactly for his crimes. <laughs> We all know that James Franco's quite hung. Mm. Hey, <laughs> any event, I wasn't going to go there, but <laughs> Freudian slip. So he's he's about to get hanged. Uh, however, he, he's broken free in a very unlikely circumstance. Um, gets accused of another crime and then mm-hmm. gets hung. And there it is again. Gets hanged <laughs> again. This time for real. That's the bleak ending for this particular story called Near Alagondas Al- or something. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. Exactly. Um, it takes place in uh, New Mexico. And, like, I didn't understand the theme of this one besides the fact that. You know, like all the like all the other Coen Brothers' most nihilistic stories, it's like sometimes things just happen, and you know he gets yeah. away only to die <laughs> later, which is I guess kind of poignant. But like that's it. Like this is pretty thin gruel comparatively speaking to the other ones. Yeah, it feels like a tonal transition from the jolly musical we had earlier to oh, yeah. the I believe the bleakest of all. And my my particularly favorite story, the third short, is called Meal Ticket. Yeah. So this one has Liam Neeson playing. Mm-hmm. Um, he is he's basically a traveling uh, showman, and he has this actor who I thought was implying that it was his son, but he has his son who has no arms and legs. Yeah. And basically, well, let's he... just say a young man who is a uh, mm-hmm. an impresario, a, a, a great actor um, who recites basically uh, Mary or excuse me, not Mary Shelley, um, she- um, <laughs> Piercy Shelley. Mary. Yeah. Um, P- Percy Shelley's Ozymandias, um, the Gettysburg Address, uh, the last uh, soliloquy, or excuse me, monologue in The Tempest. Yeah. And um, basically, we, we see a traversing of, of when, they, when they're at the height of their fame, what, what little of it it is, <laughs> mm-hmm. and to basically their struggles through, um, in sharp relief to the other two shorts, um, kind of mining towns out in the mountains and the woods in winter. Exactly. And uh, he basically, they... they go from town to town we just kind of see him doing his mon- his monologues over and over again and the money's starting to kind of slowly dry up people aren't exactly uh willing to give them money anymore until eventually they come across a uh mathematician chicken 
And <laughs> it's a chicken, no matter what number you give him, he's able to figure out the answer. So and I love the way that the people are like, three less than seven. <laughs> like, they don't, the, the way they, <laughs> they phrase don't... it. That's what I found most extraordinary, the way they could phrase it. Like, exactly. Even the kitchen, their kitchen, even the chicken could figure it out. Mm-hmm. It's probably smarter than Watson, really. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Liam Neeson buys the chicken, and uh, in the in the yes, this is probably the bleakest of all endings. Eventually, he just kind of realizes, well, the chicken makes more money than the actor, so I guess we gotta ditch the actor. <laughs> and <laughs> like now, granted, it's it's not as direct as that. Basically, they come across a bridge. Liam Neeson stops, drops a rock to see how deep the river is. Mm-hmm. And, and then following we, that, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a shot where um, he basically approaches their cart with a sinister smile. Mm-hmm. And the following shot, the young man isn't there anymore. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, so, I, I like this one because, again, I had no idea where it was going. And I think the performances are great, even like Liam Neeson, even though he doesn't have like a single... He, well, he has like two lines. Well, yeah, there's a reason that you don't see where it's going. It's because it's it's practically silent, other than the performances... Other than the recitations of Ozymandias and the Gettysburg Address, there's no dialogue, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only the only plot twist, or like, the only direction that the plot goes is that they do visit a brothel, <laughs> yeah. and the young man isn't allowed to participate. I mean, come <laughs> on, Mr. Neeson, come on. It's not fair. <laughs> yeah. So this one felt that, yeah, I was most disappointed by this one, because I really wanted more. I really wanted to see what their relationship was. I mean, you thought you thought he was his son. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't get that at all from how, like, dismissive or not how... Well, uncaring, yeah. Again, yeah, the title says it all. Was, it's called yeah. meal ticket, you know. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of affection. So, like, I really wanted more mm-hmm. to go, more to see in the story. Exactly. I mean, what what else could you want, Greg? It's got a mathematician chicken. Come on, I that's really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, um, oh brother, where art thou? I'm not sure. I can't confirm this, but every animal you see is technically uh, CGI. Actually, no, the chicken, probably that would be too difficult. But No, the chicken, yeah. Uh, okay, so here's the other thing I wanted to mention about this movie. It is absolutely yeah. gorgeous, because this is the first time the Coen brothers have actually shot digitally. And yeah. just the detail is just so great. But it also, when they do use uh, special effects, it's a little, it's a little janky. A little, well, yeah, I was going to say, I was going to push back on that. I didn't like the cinematography here mm-hmm. um there's something about it that maybe is a little bit too sharp and a little bit too much information that my brain can't process so <laughs> yeah <laughs> unfortunately they're not working with uh, my favorite cinematographer oh <laughs> first time listeners know that i love the work of roger deakins he's a longtime collaborator of the of the coen brothers he didn't work on this movie though instead it's uh, shot by uh, bruno uh, Del Bonnell. Yeah, um, exactly. A guy I'm not really familiar with. And it was shot on, shot in, I believe, a red camera or something, not not on film. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. like, you can't not make the beautiful vistas of the Wild West look beautiful, so... <laughs> It's yeah, the same. Especially... It's kind of the same thing I experienced when I was watching like the Hateful Eight, even though that was done in seventy millimeter. Uh, you know, it's going to be impressive no matter what camera you use. Besides, maybe a Super Eight. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> but the reason why I brought it up is because going into the next story, which is probably besides Buster Scruggs, my favorite, mm-hmm. featuring uh, the Prospector, which is Tom Waits in a in a delightfully brilliant piece of casting, <laughs> <laughs> and a delightfully brilliant piece of writing because he's the sole person. Pretty mm-hmm. much the sole person in this short. Um, however, the, the man, the man has a has a sharp tongue. <laughs> he's always talking. He's always chattering about something. Mr. Pocket, I'm gonna get you, Mr. Pocket. <laughs> Maybe not today, but I'll get you tomorrow, Mr. Pocket. Yeah. 
<laughs> how how high can an owl count anyway? I'll just take one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this this short opens or excuse me takes place in a beautiful valley in Telluride, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, it's based on it. I think this is actually. Oh no, sorry. The next one is also adapted. This one called All Gold Canyon is adapted from a Jack London short story. Oh. And it is about a prospector literally looking for one particular um, spot of gold, um, mm-hmm. as he calls a Mister Pocket. Yep, <laughs> a pocket of gold. <laughs> it's a vein. Yeah. Well, and again, it goes back to that whole theme of like prospectors were kind of like kooky people, and I think this kind of captures it beautifully is probably because they were so isolated they were so lonely and again all he could oh, talk yeah. to was this mule so and the <laughs> you know the vein of gold no matter where it is so mm-hmm. and again we just go through the whole process he he figures out you know where in the river most of the gold is collecting and then he digs slowly up the hill until he figures out exactly where that vein of gold is um spoiler alert there's someone who's been following him doing this <laughs> Exactly. I was going to explain. Um, even though we look at the laborious process of gold panning and digging, mm-hmm. um, it's not. It's never dull, and that's just a credit to how great the filmmakers are when he's pan when he's panning. Like, oh, three, three little nuggets. Um, <laughs> oh, five, seven. Okay, back yeah. to three. <laughs> now one. Now none. So, like, yeah, it's in. It's in here somewhere. Mr. Pocket's in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> also a credit to just how great Tom Waits is, someone who's not really a professional actor, but, I mean, he makes it very oh, compelling. But, John, a professional entertainer. I on. guess this is also true. <laughs> a yes. legend in his own right. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Can't argue with yeah. that. But, yeah, I yeah, this was was definitely my second favorite of the, of the six stories. Yeah. And the only one to end, I'd say, affirmatively, because, as you said, um, somebody has been camping on his little... Camping on his little mine here, mm-hmm. um, letting him do all the work, and then once once he finally fa- finds the the big draw, the big nugget, uh, as it were, then a shadow emer- a shadow emerges and he shoots him. Mm-hmm. And this is this is one of the, I guess, like when you speak of ten scenes, I mean this this whole short could have been very boring in the amount that it takes its time. Um, so the young man like lights a cigarette, waits to confirm that he's finally dead. And then once he drops into the hole, that's when Tom Waits attacks. <laughs> exactly. It's great. <laughs> yeah. It's screaming out. Oh, you, you were camping on my spot. Let me do all the work. Oh, you didn't hit nothing important. <laughs> well, it's also like, yeah, if, even though nothing's literally happening, he shoots him in the back uh-huh. and he waits to basically confirm that he's dead. Like spoiler alert, he's not, but it feels like five minutes, yeah. but it's still so tense. And mm-hmm. again, just a credit to the great filmmaking, like you said. Like he literally like shoots him in the back, like sits there, rolls a cigarette, <laughs> yeah. like, and it's still exciting. It's still exciting. And he, Miss Tom Waits, does actually survive. Um, <laughs> takes his plunder and leaves the valley, and then kind of nature is also restored because exactly. the animals return. And yeah. as you mentioned, the janky special effects. There is a there is a deer that unfortunately is not a real deer. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine that the amount of the level of patience you need to actually be shooting a deer to have it to have it 
do exactly what you want on camera, but anyway. I mean, Richard Attenborough would do it. Okay. I, <laughs> no, he wouldn't. Yeah, I guess he would true. sit in a recording booth. <laughs> that's he, would let true. Some, he would let some schmucks on the BBC go out to <laughs> negative 20 degrees on the, in the Arctic Circle, <laughs> sit for 20 hours a day to find some Arctic fox or something. Mm -hmm. So anyway, moving on to my favorite. Like, next story, this is the only one I felt like could probably fill a whole movie. Because this one yes, is probably the most the longest. densely plotted. Yes, I believe it's the longest. And as you said, the most densely plotted. It's about a young woman named Alice Long Longabow. <laughs> love Miss Longabow. Love the last names here. Miss Longabow. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and her guide. Uh, we'll talk about a Mr. Knapp. <laughs> mm -hmm. Basically, uh, she and her brother are going to uh, take the Oregon Trail to the Willamette Valley. Um, however, her brother succumbs to, I believe, TB or some kind of whooping cough, and so she's stuck in this situation. She doesn't she doesn't know what prospects she has in the Williamette Valley. There's some notion that she might get married. Um, she doesn't know how she's going to pay her guide, um, so she turns to Mr. Arthur and uh, Mr. Knapp, mm -hmm. two of the two of the guys who basically in charge of leading uh, this wagon train all the way to Oregon. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, she's, but the complication is obviously he dies. She decides to continue on the trail, but their hired help was promised money at the end of it, which she can obviously yeah. not provide. And also, what is she going to do when she's out there? She actually has no job. She has no husband to support her, you know, and that's where Mr. Knapp comes in. You know, he, they, they start to, you know, connect and, you know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's kind of, it's lovely and romantic, but it's also very businesslike. It's like, well, I could marry you. <laughs> And hopefully I, it's not too forward. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why I appreciate this one the most, because it is the, the most realistic. I mm -hmm. mean, compare this one to Buster Scruggs, where they're using terms like Maleficent Warble. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, breaking the fourth wall in this one. Yeah, as you said, uh, it's very, very business-like, very withholding of their emotions. And, mm -hmm. um, I particularly love when uh, Mr. Knapp, he starts to gain the affection of Miss uh, uh, Miss Longbow, and she he wants to talk to his partner, Mr. Arthur, about it. Mm -hmm. um, but he's really a taciturn, kind of quiet guy. Like, he doesn't know how to talk about emotions like this. So <laughs> he just kind of sits quietly, does his work, you know, remounts his saddle, and, you know, continues eating. Like, And Mr. Knapp just doesn't know what to do. So he's, he's really got to be vulnerable in these situations. So... Mm -hmm. That's why I liked it. Um, however, like the other stories, it's got to it's got to end bleakly, John. Yeah, exactly. It's got to it's got to end badly. <laughs> uh, they get separated from the group, and uh, that's when the the Cherokees attack. Yes. Um, <laughs> like that's okay. No, I don't believe it's Cherokees. I believe they're um, they're some some Sioux. I mean, I, yeah. I believe they shot this on the on the Nebraska Panhandle. So mm -hmm. I, I assume it would be Lakota Sioux or something. But well, okay. So that's that's one of the things I do want to talk about is the yes. Obviously, this is making fun or, or at least kind of a pastiche of old 50s you know westerns of that mm -hmm. era so obviously one of the kind of drawbacks is obviously the representation of indians is what they would represent or how they would represent them back then which is basically just a force of nature coming in and rooting your shit which yeah. I, I didn't really appreciate i wish they kind of maybe updated it or maybe because again they're like kind of playing with the whole notion of the old west it would have been nice if they tried to update that a little bit yeah, so there are only, I believe, literally two non-white faces in this movie, mm -hmm. and they're depicted as marauding warriors basically <laughs> coming in and ruining ruining the lives of our main characters. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's one thing I wanted to mention this, because we both love the movie. We both think it's technically great. Mm -hmm. However, 
in the year of our Lord 2018, we do have to judge movies by different standards, and one of them is how intersectional it is, how representational it is, mm-hmm. and th- that we do have to point out that, criti- that criticism of this movie in that it is, as another writer on the internet pointed out, it is blindingly white. It is not, you know, <laughs> it is not diverse enough. It is not reflective of, of life in the way that we want it to be. Um, so we do have to, I, I guess, detract points from it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though, as as much as I admire this this particular story, again, it doesn't. It's not a. It's not a. I'd say a fair representation of the native people, because again, it's another marauding brand. They mm-hmm. they um, they again depiction of uh, scalping and violence and yeah, it just it just makes you feel a little queasy inside. And you wish there could be a more, I th- I think, tasteful and um, nuanced portrait of the native people. But, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, they attack and. Uh, it's it's not Mr. Nab who's who, sorry what was his other name? Uh, Mr. Arthur. It's um, Mr. Arthur who says, ends up kind of saving the day or at least protecting her. And yeah, before that, you know, this... before the shit goes down, she gives her uh, he gives her a pistol, saying, "Look, you know, whatever they do to you is going to be way worse than this. So you know, yeah. you know what to do. Put it right in between your eyes." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I do like uh, in sharp contrast to how taciturn he was earlier. Like mm-hmm. now he knows the situation and. And even though he's much more confident than she is, like still, it's it's pretty gripping in the way that the there's one wave of uh, native warriors coming in, they kind of peel off, and then another wave comes. And um, unfortunately, on that second wave, it looks like Mr. Arthur is um is is gone. He gets he gets smacked by a a guy hiding behind his horse. Mm-hmm. Um, this is I guess another nod to like he puts the gun behind his back and shoots the uh, native when he's not looking. Exactly. Um, but unfortunately, th- uh. Miss Longabow has seen this, and she does shoot herself in the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she thought, you know, the situation was hopeless, and they weren't going to get out of it. So, and now yeah. it's uh, Mr. Arthur's job to kind of return to Mr. Nab and tell, sadly, yeah. give the news. Mm-hmm. And that's where the story ends, which, again, ended poignantly. They all end poignantly. Sad. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. And it definitely justifies the use of those those full-color pages in the book. It felt like, okay, this is where the story was leading to. Um, mm-hmm. Unlike, say, in the second story, the pan shot guy. <laughs> as funny as his depiction was in the book, uh, it, that's not where the story was really going. So the fact that the, and it has that little, like, epigraph, like, Mr. Arthur didn't know what he was going to say to Mr. Knapp. Like, you know, it's it's like the for, story has come full circle. So that's why that's why I appreciate this one the most. Yeah. It was. It, it's a really. It's a really good one. It's a really good one. But mm-hmm. I think one of my other favorites is the last one, even though it's got the least amount of action in it. It's least amount of action. I'd say also production quality. Um. Yeah. Uh, it's a little. It, it takes place completely on a stagecoach and a sound stage, probably, because it's yeah. very <laughs> with a green screen. Yeah. yeah. Um. But and I was kind of confused on why they did this one last, because it's literally just people in a stagecoach just musing, kind of you know, yeah. just a conversation. <laughs> But, well, John, you may not have picked up on this. What? Wait the a minute. Theme of, yeah, but the theme of this one is about death. It's about Ooh. death, and it's about telling stories. Yeah. So it's a nice little way to kind of wrap it up. Again, talking about yeah. why we tell stories, and you know, the, the the main bounty hunter who I thought was like he's literally like the devil. He's got a cane, and you know, he's yeah. talking about death, and he ferries souls to the next life. Yeah, he's, I I think he literally has a curled mustache. So. <laughs> Yeah, and so he's talking about, you know, the nature of stories and how he's able to, he's a bounty hunter, and one of his tools of the trade is distracting people with stories, because, you know, mm-hmm. we see ourselves in the characters, and who likes, to, who doesn't like talking about themselves? <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, 
this it's all about death and what he says is that's the reason why we like the stories where people die because it's them dying it's not us you're gonna yeah. live forever <laughs> <laughs> so I, it, it brings it full circle you know because again all these stories are about death and this is the only one where no one technically dies there is a dead body you know hanging yeah. on the top of the stagecoach but that's it yeah, and it also kind of returns us to the tone because, yeah, we have like kind of larger-than-life characters that the Coens are known for. Mm-hmm. There's a fur trapper that won't shut up. And <laughs> exactly. A very stern uh, dowager um, mm-hmm. who is separated from her husband. And so, like, yeah, there's a little bit of conflict until the two bounty hunters, um, played by uh, JoJo O'Neill and Brendan Gleeson, mm-hmm. the inimitable <laughs> Brendan Gleeson. See, I didn't um, think he had enough to do. He was kind of the stoic side and type. He's like, oh, well. <laughs> you know, he compliments him, and he's like, oh, stop. <laughs> Well, remember, John, he does sing a song. Oh, that's true. The Coen true. brothers make make the best use of their Irish actors by making mm. them sing a jaunty Irish tune. <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, titty-lighty-titty. <laughs> no, it's not that obvious, but it's, yeah. As I was a-walking down by the lock As I was a-walking one morning of late who should I spy but my own dear comrade? Wrapped up in flannel, so hard is his fate. I boldly stepped up to and kindly did ask him, Why are you wrapped in flannel so white? My body is injured and sadly disordered. Oh, by a young woman, my own heart's delight. But you're right, it kind of does bring the whole story full circle, um, not only in terms of tone, but also just the idea of, as you said, I, I guess I forgot about the story and how this whole this whole movie is basically a subversion of the Western genre, so... You're right. It does. It does bring things to a to a close. Again, not the most compelling though. I, I kept getting distracted by the the artificiality of the green screen behind them and the mm-hmm. lighting because it literally goes from like yeah, again, for sun, something that was sunset shot... to like dark gray in like two minutes. So. Yeah, for something shot so digitally, it's weird how wonky the effects were. But again, they probably don't have a lot of experience with special effects, so they don't. Yeah, I. That's I think the only demerit to the movie overall is that maybe the special effects could have used a second pass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but again, it's not about that. <laughs> It's about the the script and the stories. It's about the stories. That's true. Go see and Infinity War are... again if you want your whiz bang stupid dumb fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is six solid stories, and I'm assuming they had to get it out in time for Oscar season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Oscar season, John. Oh boy, <laughs> this is not the only other Oscar contender we saw. No, no. we with saw quite pro- a bit. with possibly problematic racist racial dynamics. <laughs> Uh, this week, we also caught the latest Viggo Mortensen and Masala Ali. Uh, Marisala Ali. Marisala Ali starring feature Green. Yeah. Some guy called over here, a doctor. He's looking for a driver. You interested? I am not a medical doctor. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. What other experience do you have? Public relations. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? You and a deep south? There's gonna be problems. Promise me you're gonna write me a letter. No problems. Tell me that don't smell good. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. 
John, this movie's just like a warm blanket, isn't it? Greg, this is the, the we have birthed a new basic cable classic. That's like <laughs> and I mean That's that fair. with the highest praise because this movie is it's very simple and it's yeah. telling a very kind of uncomplicated story, but you know, like you just picture it with commercial breaks. Like <laughs> it's almost designed to have commercial <laughs> breaks. And again, no matter where you come in, you're flipping through, it's on TNT and you're like, "Oh, okay, so we're at, you know, the midpoint of the movie, even though I've never seen it before." Okay, good to know. <laughs> yeah. So you may have heard this movie's already being described as uh, driving Miss Daisy in reverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tells it tells the story of the which true that would be awesome if he was driving Miss Daisy in reverse the whole movie. That would be exciting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Morgan Freeman being cool with his arm on the on the back seat, you know, looking mm-hmm. out the back window. <laughs> He's looking cool. <laughs> but anyway, it tells the the true friendship between uh, impresario magician or magician impresario. <laughs> He is like a magician in some way. He's a showman. Of course. Um, but noted uh, classical pianist uh, Don Shirley and his, who eventually became his road manager, Frank uh, Tony Lip Vallelonga. Mm-hmm. Tony Lip. And yeah. let me tell you, Viggo Mortensen's really putting his heart and soul into this, into this, <laughs> this gabagoo. Yeah. <laughs> so he's playing a, a stereotypical Italian, but damned if he doesn't do a good job. I mean, I think he kind of slips into the character. I wasn't, I wasn't even conscious that I was watching a, an actor, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's great. And uh, even though it is very broad. But I think yeah. it also works in the movie's favor because I think the best part about this movie is it does not try to paint Frankie Lip or Doc yeah. on kind of even levels. You know, it's like so many no. of these kind of like movies, like I, I kept thinking about The Help and how it's like, you know, us white and black people aren't so different, you and I. This movie doesn't really try to capture that. Instead, it's it's about two characters navigating this very racist system and it never tries to be like you know maybe we're not so different you and i because yeah because yeah, obviously doc is a way more sophisticated and way more complicated character as opposed mm-hmm. to frank who is just literally just like <laughs> just and that's why the stereotypical thing works because again he is just a complete mook he has no yeah. internal life whatsoever he loves his wife he loves his kids he goes to work he gets paid and he's done yeah um i will say Granted, that's all very obvious. Like you're right; they never come to a consensus. Like, hey, we're not we're not so different, or mm-hmm. you know, there's like le- there, it's not as obvious what the lessons learned. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I guess the scene that's depicted in the trailer is um, Frank Vallelonga introduces him to fried chicken for the very first time, mm-hmm. and it's and I think it does terminate with like, okay, Don Shirley has to learn to be a man of the people, <laughs> particularly his people. Yeah. So what the story is leading to, he's he's basically the the story such as it such as it is is um Frank Vallelonga loses his job mm-hmm. and he's hired to basically be the chauffeur and road manager for Don Shirley on a tour in the South. Mm-hmm. So things are going to get a little precarious and hairy down there. A uh, black man touring through the South, particularly one as sophisticated and erudite as he is. Exactly. So. Basically, as they as they go through this journey, um, they they contrast particularly in their styles and also kind of their upbringing and class. Mm-hmm. And so there are, I guess, lessons to be learned. How, and again, kind of, I'm just speaking to the most obvious ones, but um, Frankie tries to basically implores him to be but be a bit more of a black man or a man of the people mm-hmm. um, basically be in tune with his more with his culture um, because he is so erudite and. Sort of on this ivory a tower. Feet. He's very a feat. Yes, that too. And I believe, I, John, I didn't know this. 
He he. I think he's living above Carnegie Hall. Yeah. And is that what they mean? Is that what they mean when they say an artist is in residence? Like he's literally living at Carnegie Hall I in had, residence. Yeah. I had no idea what that was. I had no idea there were yeah. apartments above Carnegie Hall. That kind of confused me. So I didn't really yeah. look into that. Um, maybe that's yeah. Maybe that's what they mean. Who knows? But, um, yeah. And uh, well, I was gonna say, and later, basically, as we said, um, uh. Frankie is a mook, and Don helps him with his letters and makes him be less of a subliterate, you know, <laughs> blockhead. <laughs> makes him sound like less of a subliterate blockhead. Exactly, yeah. Um, but you know, they're they're navigating the deep south, and they realize that it's it's complicated. It's almost like a like a spaghetti bolognese with how complicated it is. Things are weaving in and out. Um, great analogy. Thank you, thank you. And the the other great thing about the movie is obviously it adds so many so many layers, like a great lasagna, um, <laughs> to the character of Doc. Because not only is he obviously not a man of his own people, but he's you know obviously and i kind of saw this coming he's also gay mm-hmm. so they also have well, to navigate that as well and which i kind of yeah. saw coming because again he he was way too a feat he was way too like he could literally when he's first introduced <laughs> he's wearing like some kind of robe like kingly robe and he sits on a throne <laughs> yeah and i believe there's a comparison to liberace too mm-hmm. um, absolutely yeah, so. who obviously wasn't gay i mean he never oh he no never no absolutely it. not <laughs> he, he said his whole life he loved the ladies so i i take him at his word um, <laughs> But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because we're talking about like intersectionality, and I'm and I'm amazed because we should we should say Frankie is introduced as a racist, but like very implicitly, um, he doesn't like that there are t- first two black men in his apartment doing some repair. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife offers them some lemonade or something, and he throws out the glasses. Yeah, like somehow like he's he's been raised with some. A, a very ignorant notion that you know biologically somehow we're different or they're dirtier or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, um, he gets over that pretty quickly when he was with Don, and also like he's he's also willing, despite that ignorance about race, he's somehow completely willing to look past this um, indiscretion. Mm-hmm. Um, a, again, indiscretion for the time. I I found it weird how he had this blind spot with his with his racial bigotry but somehow he was like so ready to accept and defend his newfound friend uh based on his sexuality um maybe that's because he was raised catholic and had seen this before i don't know <laughs> oh. just make <laughs> well that no i think there. he does he admits to having some experience dealing with that because like he said he, he there's the line uh i've worked in a nightclub i've seen it all so oh, okay. the other thing too is, and again, this is this is just going into a little bit of history. Uh, back in the day, you know, back when you know homosexual homosexual acts were illegal, the places yeah. where you could go were mob run. So mm-hmm. there's that kind of Italian connection there as well, and they were, uh, I would I I hesitate to say a little more accepting of it because again they were participating in all forms of vice, and part of the reason, like the Stonewall Inn, for example, the place of the Stonewall yeah. riots, that was in business because it had mob ties. And okay. the mob was the mob was obviously willing to look the other way because a they can make money off any vice, but also b it was a great blackmailing yeah. tool. So, <laughs> so I think that was kind of the connection there, or at least that was how I okay. read into it. But again, that's kind of extracurricular, so I don't, that that's you know who knows if that was intended or not. I mean, it does. I feel like it does soften Frank a little bit too much. Because not only, obviously, does he get over racism quite quickly, he is always presented with opportunities to participate in mob-related crimi- uh, criminality. And he always says no, because he's just he's such a good family man. He's such a good, noble guy. And I kind of yeah. wish that it, it, it played maybe a little bit more with, 
Yeah, I, but again, it's a soft movie. It's a nice middle brow, obviously going for Oscar gold kind of fair. So obviously they're not going to go that dark with it. Yeah, and I think the reason why that is is because this is, and I think this is a bit of a problem with the movie, is that is this is Frank's story. Mm-hmm. Don Shirley is a supporting character. This is Frank's story. It was championed by his son, Nick Valoanga, who is, I believe has a story credit and is executive producer on the movie. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that really championed this movie. But it is kind of Frank's story, and especially... You know, we spoke to criticisms earlier, like movies aren't being you know representational or intersectional enough. I think that's something that we can also leverage against this film. It's it's the white man's story. I was also picturing like, what does it look? There are very few scenes where we see it, where Don is solely in the frame, or we're seeing it from Don's perspective. That um, is true. But again, yeah, I think I was, it's because I was kind of picturing a, a slight, maybe a slightly more interesting movie if like he's he's alone on this ivory tower in this in this <laughs> giant apartment filled with um, like uh, beautiful gifts and you know knickknacks that he's accumulated over the years with this brilliant piano playing so yeah but doc is also the outsider and so to kind of oh, make true, he's yeah. he's in, he's always meant to be kind of unrelatable again with how you know erudite he is so i think to make him a main character would be it would be more of a story struggle to kind of get us yeah. to relate to him or feel bad with about, about his struggle which is obviously you know once they get into the deep south and they go through like a sunset town you know obviously that's when it becomes really relatable but yeah, yeah. To get um, to start I'm, there, I think would be kind of a stretch or a bit of a hurdle. How is that? Salty. Have you ever considered becoming a food critic? No, not really. Why is there money in it? I'm just saying you have a marvelous way with words when describing food. Salty. So vivid, one can almost taste it. Hey, I'm just saying it's salty. And salt's cheating. Any cook can make things salty. To make it taste good without the salt, we'll just get the flavors. That's the trick. I mean, take the basic ingredients. We should really get going soon if we expect to get to Pittsburgh by dinner. Hey, when I was in the Army, I know a guy from Pittsburgh. Except he called it Titsburgh. But he said all the women there had huge tits. That's absurd. Why would women in Pittsburgh have larger breasts than, say, women in New York? Guess we'll find out, huh? (laughs) And I'm glad you mentioned that Sunset Town because, as we said, this movie's a warm blanket. There's never a moment where you're, like, on the edge of your seat or wondering, like, where's the story going to go from here? Mm -hmm. Obviously, every scene's going to have a reconciliation. They're going to get out of it A-OK. The only scene where you don't feel like that happens, or and, you know, it's the most poignant scene, and I was worried that it was too obvious or histrionic in the trailer, but I'm glad that in the final product it's fine. It's when, um, after after an arrest because of... um, Basically, Frank violently beats off a cop who's uh, who's abusing uh, a bigoted cop who's abusing and st- and stopping and frisking essentially uh, Don Shirley. Mm-hmm. Um, following that, he does have this great monologue where he says, "Like, well, you know, as you said, it speaks to his loneliness." And he says, um, "And I do like that he mentions like I'm not I'm not white enough, I'm not black enough, and I'm also not man enough." Mm-hmm. Speaking back to his homosexuality, so I love that it's like a more subtle touch there. Yeah. Um, Rather than say having him having him run off with the love of his life, <laughs> because I don't know how I don't know how fictionalized the story is, but mm. it, I'm I'm sure it's certainly compressing. It a lot feels of it, it feels very fictionalized, but again, that's yeah. you know it's a movie, so what do you expect? <laughs> yeah, this isn't a documentary. <laughs> yeah, that said, it's a, a, a feel good movie. You know, a plus job. I mean, I felt good coming out of it. No, um, yeah, I think it's very. very I yeah. think for what it wants to be, it's very well done. 
Yeah, I'm sure some snarky bloggers in Brooklyn or whatever can be like, oh, we're just going to ignore racism, or this is the <laughs> this is the sugary sweet frosting on uh, America's racist history. And I'm like, yeah, that that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> let it. Yeah, let it let it be. Obviously, we know obviously we know racism exists, but you know why can't we be diverted for like two hours? Oh, no, Greg, racism's to, over. Return to that hellish. Greg, racism's over. Oh, you're over. right. You're yeah, right. we elected Barack Obama, and it ended it right there. It was done. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 2008 <laughs> racism from year zero to 2018 <laughs> I would say 10,000 BC oh okay there we go <laughs> but Greg the hits just keep coming and we're spending even more time in New York with our next picture oh that's right well granted in Green Book we don't spend that much time in New York I City I guess that's true oh. we do spend some time in the Bronx in the Italian yes. neighborhood hey yeah. But we have another Oscar-baiting biopic, John. Oh, uh, we do. Actors playing against type. Ugh, Greg, I'm telling a story. I, telling a story fraught with fraud and drama. I know. I feel like uh, we sh- we could have done a little more counter-programming, but sadly we didn't. And I have to ask our audience: mm-hmm. Can you ever forgive me? No. No. <laughs> You're mean. <laughs> Nobody is going to pay for the writer Lee Israel right now. I'm months behind in my rent, and my cat is sick. It's four in the afternoon, and you're drunk. I'm hardly drunk. Crazy. No problem. My suggestion to you is you go out there and you find another way to make a living. Recently found this delightful sign letter. Fanny Bryce, one of my favorites. I could give you 75. Oh. I could give more for better content. It's a bit bland is all. Yeah, I can definitely get a lot more for this one. I mean, the PS makes it... Well, clearly, uh, uh, the uh, hero of our tale here, Leah Israel, is forgiven mm. um, in that her book is adapted and becomes a bestseller. And I'm not sure if it was a bestseller, but um, <laughs> becomes an Oscar, Oscar contending movie starring Melissa McCarthy. So I'd say things worked out for her. Uh, you, you know what? <laughs> the little epilogue, you know, wrap things up nicely. So yes. uh, this one, this one also, I. This one felt very middle brow and Oscar Beatty as well, but I think I liked it a little bit less because of that. And because okay. I was hoping, because this one going into it, I was hoping for something a little more hard edged. It's like Green Book. It's like, all right, I'm expecting like a nice little pleasant time at the movies. Here, I was like kind of yeah. hoping that I would kind of like stick it to the audience a little bit more, but sadly, it doesn't. Because uh, going into the plot, Lee Israel is uh, was kind of a once successful author, you know, not huge mainstream type obviously a little past her prime yeah she's now past her prime uh she's struggling to make ends meet and so what she discovers is that she's able to make money forging letters and selling them to collectors so she mm-hmm. uh fake- letters letters from very famous authors and personalities from back in the day dorothy parker and mm-hmm. old cower yeah and um and again, like it also, it's using her skills. Like obviously, as a writer, she's <laughs> able to write in their voice and make sophisticated turns of phrases, which everyone loves. So you know, yeah, she's able to kind of justify in herself. Like, well, you know, when you write, you know, you're kind of bending reality anyway. So you know, who cares if it's forged or not? But obviously, yeah. the whole story is about how her misdeeds catch up with her eventually, and it's also about mm-hmm. her relationship with her kind of. Uh, uh, how, do, how how would you describe it? Drinking buddy, <laughs> uh, GBF maybe? Yeah, GBF. Her her GBF <laughs> slash drinking buddy Jack Hawk. Yes, uh, which it has to be made up. I mean, come on. 
I'm surprised. He, I'm surprised his his, uh, his pseudonym wasn't Jack Hoff. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yes. In any event, yeah, I think even though this is a drama, and as you said, I th- you were expecting a, a more hard-edged look at Lee Israel and the story, and I think it's because the production design is so well done. Mm-hmm. This story takes place in 1991 New York City, um, so it is a little bit dingier. Um, the color palette is all just browns and grays, and uh, Lee Israel is dressed like almost permanently in this big brown sweater <laughs> or an overcoat. Um <laughs> The the only color comes from Jack Hoff, who uh wait that's not his name John Hoff whatever <laughs> wait no it's Jack Hoff it is Jack Hoff okay yeah or Jack Ho or whatever yeah <laughs> um, the great played by the great Richard E Grant well you um, you made that comment earlier playing against type uh, I don't think Richard E Grant is playing against type at all no no <laughs> uh, so the, the production design that all speaks to how um kind of uh, how we're kind of in lower uh, basically willing to go down into the the darkness with Miss Israel as she commits this fraud. Um, I think that's that's kind of on the surface level, though. And you're right. Um, the movie is actually a bit more of a, a comedy or a bit more lighthearted than maybe you'd think mm-hmm. looking at Melissa McCarthy. Um, she's still playing kind of an acerbic... Her, she's still playing out her acerbic side, mm-hmm. uh, which I think, which you see a little bit in Bridesmaids and Spy, like a in the middle act of Spy. Like she's 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 a tough chick and she's very abrasive with everybody, including I think best of all her agent. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> those in particular are my favorite scenes. Yeah. Um, so I I wouldn't say it's like a like a, a, a sharp contrast or like a complete yeah, a complete like unexpected turn from Melissa McCarthy here. That said, it's still a very good performance though. No, it's still a great performance. And again, the movie's very handsome. I just wish it kind of maybe subverted expectations a little bit because you kind of see where everything's going and it wraps up just a little too neatly after everything's been said and done and she's been convicted of this crime. You know, there's like this scene where we see her back in her apartment and she started to, you know, write her memoirs about this whole story. And now the apartment's clean and there's plants everywhere and she has a new kitten. She's got, you know, it's, she's got a new lease on life. And I don't know, that moment for me just kind of rang completely hollow. I wish, I wish it kind of went darker. I wish like she didn't bounce back maybe. <laughs> yeah, you're right there. I think there's a few reasons. Um, there are a few reasons for that. One is, um, I think you're right. They could have gone a little darker when uh, she does come into the money. She does come into some money with this fraud, um, pays back her rent, and gets some repairs done. Yeah. And that's when we kind of see the extent of uh, her deprivation, because it, it appears that she's a hoarder, and her cat is um, doing doing her business underneath the bed. <laughs> yeah, and she's become so nose-blind to it, she doesn't realize she's sleeping above, like, millions yeah. of cat turds. Yeah. But you're right. It's like you could, if it had maybe he had a better filmmaker behind that, it could have been like that scene in Seven or something. Like that's how <laughs> that's how dark and gritty we could have gone. But you're right. It's more. It's a little more playful that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with one scene. Speaking of intersectional intersectionality, um, her best friend is a out and out homosexual, and she, and she is a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And there's only one really really good um scene that i think really challenges this and it's when she's she's really cornered with her fraud she's about to get caught and she calls an old flame Mm -hmm. and they have one scene in the park and she basically kind of spills or reveals to us the audience about lee israel's history and you know how how desperate and how in spite of how acerbic she is she's actually very vulnerable and is just kind of reaching out here exactly um, to, to an old love just out of desperation and affirmation and I think, like, finally, yeah, I think in that scene, you're finally right. It's like we're we're getting a little bit darker, and we're not we're not kind of playing it safe with Miss Israel here. Mm-hmm. 
So I, you're right. I wish there was a little bit more touches to that, um, touches of that. Like like Green Book, it is effective in what it sets out to do in terms of like telling this crime story, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, kind of the colorful characters <laughs> <laughs> yes, that kind of populate it. So and again, that kind of heightened reality of it being a movie. So obviously, mm-hmm. there's not a complete level of verisimilitude, which I was kind of hoping because again, this is a more grounded kind of complex story. It would maybe try to go in that direction, but sadly, yeah. But it's, again, still good performances, still very handsomely directed. Um, you really do get a sense of time and place. It's the early 90s in New York. Things are kind of slowly starting to get cleaned up with Giuliani and stuff like that. So I, I appreciate it on that level. And again, I, I completely like Lee Israel throughout this whole story. Because if you're one of these rubes or whatever who can be built out of seeing a letter from <laughs> Noel Coward say, like, Dear Ducky, I was in Monaco the other day and the Duchess completely uh, spilt, spilt champagne all over the floor. It was an utter delight. Like, you deserve to have all your money taken. Well, no, it has a very dim view of the publishing industry, that's for sure. <laughs> that's true. So I think you also, as well, as you well probably should, also as well appreciate you it on that level, so. <laughs> yeah. I thought this uh, one line here was particularly clever, don't you think? It's wonderful. I love his writing. And Dorothy Parker as well. Caustic wit, you know? Caustic wit is my religion. I can't carry it off. You certainly can. Doesn't help too much in the relationship department. I'm sure that's not true. Okay, should we settle up? Yeah. I know. Cash. <laughs> uh, this has my number. Well, the number of the store. If you're ever in the neighborhood and, you know, want to get a drink or a coffee sometime. Sounds good. I'd like that. That was a different era, back when people actually bought books. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't know if they bought books in 1991. Anyway. <laughs> it's fine. It's all fine. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> go see so, it. Yeah. <laughs> so to sum up, uh, you know, can you ever forgive me? Pretty good. Yep. Maybe wait till it's on uh, on demand or something like that. Green Book, I'd say good. Mm-hmm. Solid use of your time and well-earned money if you have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, great. Absolutely. You have no the, excuse. Log into your not to yeah, see it. Yeah. Log into your Netflix right now. Yeah. <laughs> the, the put nailed it on hold for a while and then. <laughs> But Greg, they got a Christmas special coming out. Oh, my attention is I so know, divided. I know. I we were misled. We were ready to watch it, and we saw it coming December seventh. So, Ugh. damn it, we were ready. We were ready to watch it that night. No, come on. <laughs> yeah, we got to push a notification for that new Mowgli movie, and that's not coming out for another week either. Ugh. Come on, Netflix. Get, come on, get it together. Come on, Andy Circus. Come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel bad. <laughs> Why? Because they got their lunch completely eaten by Disney. <laughs> That's they... Disney's job is to eat everyone's lunch. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if they're Instead not stealing your lunch Serkis. money, they're buying you out anyway. <laughs> yeah, That's true. But now poor Andy Serkis and Warner Brothers have to schlep it on <laughs> schlep it onto Netflix next to like the Cloverfield Paradox <laughs> or some other garbage movie. Oh, yeah. Hey, at least they're not like dumping it the day later. You know, they're actually building up to it. It's like, look, this is going to be good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know. I saw print ads for it, so like, good, good on them. Yep. <laughs> or it could be the next bright. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
We were we were tugging our collar. <laughs> we were tugging our collars there. Uh, I know this is a visual medium, but that, that's what that sound was. Okay. <laughs> Greg, what else did you get to see over the break in the local cinemas? Ah, I'm glad you asked, John. And it's a movie that I want to talk about for our signature section, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Yes. John, this is this has been the year of the fanboys. Mm-hmm. We we have our Infinity Wars. We have our we have new fanboys and for in Black Panther. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, Aquaman coming out. <laughs> so every every fan imaginable has been satiated Finally. this year. The Aquaman yes. fanboys will get their due. <laughs> Did you just call them Aquaman? Yes, they're Aquaman. <laughs> that's their that's their official title. Okay. You know how that's Batman sexist. fans are Brucies? They're, these are Aquaman. <laughs> Aquaman. <laughs> but anyway, every fanboy has been satiated this me- this year and i have been too mm. because this november this the day following thanksgiving saw the release of the latest film from my boy Hirokazu Kureda. Oh, that's boy. right i'm talking shoplifters okay. shoplifters shoplifters winner of the palm door at can i'm gonna stop singing okay. that was embarrassing gosh cut that out get, get rid of it <laughs> nope. awful nope. terrible nope. i'm keeping that in <laughs> everybody erase it from your memories please <laughs> All right. Anyway, yes. So yeah, saw... quite dumb little movie where everyone's speaking <laughs> some foreign language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get it. We get it. Dumb. How dare you? All right. Let me explain who Hirokazu Kureda is. He oh. does these very nice, tasteful, like uh, like Ozu before him. He does these very nice, tasteful family dramas. Okay. Uh, usually about the themes of family, schmuck fathers, um, kids. <laughs> very good film performances uh, from the kids. Okay. And this movie's no different. It's about a family of, as the title implies, shoplifters. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, a Greg, is it, is it less about the family that you that you keep and more the family that you make? <laughs> you know, John, you're not wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> However, it's a little more complicated by that. Um, four people not connected biologically um, living under the roof of this grandmother, um, played by Kieran Kiki, who sadly passed away during post-production, so this is her final performance. She was a frequent collaborator with uh, Kareda. Basically, they make their living, although although that they do work, uh, they do also make a living with shoplifting, basically filching like a, a bag, uh, bag of chips here, some shampoo there. Okay. Yeah, so they're, so they're little part-time criminals as well. And they come across a, a young lady who's clearly been abused. She's sitting out on her balcony on, in the cold weather. Um, so they basically take her in as well. She's the newest family member in this little in this little um, uh, coterie that they have here. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's when it becomes kind of the, the tasteful little family drama. I will say it's introduced a little bit more entertainingly, though. Um, the scene, the movie starts with a, a scene of them, you know, pinching pinching stuff from a supermarket, and there's like this uh, this uh, jaunty tune underneath, like a uh, like the the jazz score um, <laughs> underneath the film noir or something like that, as uh, as they give little uh, signals to one another and um, drop <laughs> drop the drop the treats into their bags and and scurry off. Mm-hmm. So so it's it's a little bit a little bit different tonally than Kareta's other like tasteful. I.e. boring dramas <laughs> that I that I so much enjoy. Uh, however, it's when the nature of uh, this essential kidnapping, because they have, by all intents and purposes, they have Excuse me? Kidnapping? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, they see on the news this girl has disappeared. She, he's in the, she's in their she's in their possession under their guardianship, like oh. <laughs> not legally. So yes, technically it's kidnapping. Okay. Um, Interesting. However, they get yes. However, they get away with it. Uh, to a point, uh, the film takes place over the course of an entire year, and so 
um, there are there are like little conflicts that come up until um, they do get caught. Uh, they do find that this they've basically taken in this young girl uh, potentially against her will, and basically the the entire family falls apart and their backstories are revealed. And that's where the story does come together. And I'll tell you where it really hits you, John. And that's where Creative wants to hit you. It's in the heart. Oh, and um, yeah. So this uh, this movie's got a lot of heart to it. Uh, I'd say it's a little more obvious um, in that than some of his past films. Uh, for instance, uh, the before they um, take in this young girl, the youngest member of the family is a young boy named Shota, and um, his father, uh, played by Lily Frankly, who's also another frequent collaborator of of Kareda, uh, says, "Like I want you to call me dad," and of course he refuses to do so <laughs> until. <laughs> Midway through the movie, obviously. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And it's so just kind of like a obvious. toss-off moment, obviously. It's not that dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, obviously, it's got the sentiment of Spielberg, but, again, like his, like all of his other films, it's a very effective, tasteful family drama that, you know, just hit me hit me right in my heartstrings, as all his other movies do. So, Aww. I adored it, obviously. So... I, I would appreciate if everybody else does. Um, <laughs> see it in theaters if you can. Or don't. Wait till it's on Netflix. I don't care. Just expose yourself to it, please. No, okay. Just give it give it a chance, yeah. And all those other movies that I've recommended. After the Storm I've talked about. Uh, I think I've talked about Nobody Knows or Still Walking. Again, all great. Got, you know, hopefully it gets some Oscar contention. Oh, that's the other thing I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, the best performance of all is by the matriarch of the family, Um Basically, she's she's not married, but she's in a relationship uh, with uh, the father, uh, played by Lily Frankly. Um, her name is Sakura Ando, and she is magnificent. Okay. Um, yes, partially that's because she's given the richest backstory once the family is kind of exposed and, and ripped apart by the, rightfully so, you could argue, by the legal system. <laughs> um, you mean so just a has... band of homeless people can't get together and make a little makeshift family? <laughs> Under the eyes of the have... law, this is bullshit. <laughs> yes. Technically, they do have a home fr- under the roof of a grandmother who bilks a family out of about 30,000 yen every time she visits. Oh, so. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. So, again, they're also not the most savvy characters, so that that you do appreciate. It's, it's emotional honesty, even when it is trying to uh, inject a lot of sentimentality into the story. So... Hmm. But uh, Ando is fantastic. She is fantastic um, in the few scenes she has where um, she's really exposed and, and vulnerable. So um, I hope she gets some Oscar consideration. It's a long shot, but I think she has the best performance in the movie, and she's the best part of it. So okay, okay, yeah. All right, I'm still not sold, but you know, I <laughs> of course you aren't. <laughs> no, no. Great. I mean, who would be? Who would be? I mean, despite my enthusiasm, I mean, come on, we have to be realist here. <laughs> This is a, this is a two-hour uh, movie in subtitles about people basically talking. It's not it's not it's not exactly Infinity War. It's not going to grip you from beginning to end. Or, well, it did, it did me, but I mean that's the problem, Greg. I want every movie to be Infinity War. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it, it is a lot to ask, John. No. All right. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Well. Well, that, well that's why this movie isn't as good as Infinity War because not everybody dies at the end. Uh, so. Okay. <laughs> it's not that bleak. Yeah. No, it's not that bleak. Yeah. But, well, Greg. I saw a movie recently that was almost as good as Infinity War. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, now I was hoping you'd have a fan, you'd have a chance to fanboy out too, uh, with Wreck-It Ralph 
t- with uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Yes. Because you obviously adored Wreck-It Ralph 1. So. I, I, I wanted to go see that. Sadly, I did not have time. I'm so busy, you guys. I'm so busy. <laughs> and I couldn't schlep to the theater. So, But it, but in my haste, I was able to pick up a movie on Netflix called The Christmas Chronicles. Oh. Yeah. Again, I look forward to our next spotlight when you do a real movie this time. Okay. <laughs> look. All right. It's not... All right, all right. Is it better than the Christmas Prince Two Royal Wedding? <laughs> yes. The okay. Here's the only notable thing about the movie. It is the presence okay. of Kurt Russell as Santa Claus, and Kurt of Russell course. brings his A game to no matter what material he is in. And boy, howdy, does he get to do his favorite thing, which is pretend to be Elvis. So he's playing, he's playing ripped, awesome Santa who just knows everything. And I wish, okay. There's so much to say about this movie. First problem. <laughs> sure. That, uh, again, I, I object to you, to you qualifying it as a movie. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, first Maybe problem. Maybe TV special? It looks yeah. like it was made for $12. It is so cheap okay. looking. <laughs> um, and yet they still got Kurt Russell. Interesting. Exactly. I'm, well, again, that's where all the money went. And all the money went there. And the special effects that it does use obviously went to its little minions knockoffs. The elves in this movie are basically <laughs> just minions, except now they're like Ugh. Swedish nonsense and sort of French nonsense. They're like, oh, we go, we go, you know, and they're like <laughs> wobbling around just like minions do, getting into trouble and then almost threatening to castrate someone with a chainsaw. That was a very weird moment. Um, Great. Yeah. So the story centers around the the Pierce clan, whose their father has sadly, uh, tragically passed away the past year. So it's just not going to be Christmas without them. Um, oh. It's also like weird. So they 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 tape record all their Christmases, even though it's like 2018. And I guess that's part of like the joke is the fact they're using this very antiquated technology to film it. Um, and so the two kids, you've got Teddy and Kate. And mm-hmm. Kate, you know, she's she's still very optimistic. She's still full full of the Christmas spirit. Teddy's become a sullen teenager who jacks cars. Ugh. That's like, yeah. <laughs> it's it's going for like a very fably kind of Chris Columbus kind of level of kids movie, which it doesn't quite achieve. But I admire the effort. I admire the effort. Um, so Teddy is like sullen. You know, he's stuck babysitting her. For Christmas, because now the mom is the only one. She's the only breadwinner, and now she has to do an overnight with the hospital on Christmas Eve of all nights. Ugh. Ugh. Kate, being precocious and full of the Christmas spirit, wants to catch Santa Claus this year, because she noticed in one of the tapes, one of the old past Christmas tapes, there's a hand that mm-hmm. s- sneaks presents underneath the tree for like a split second. So now she's convinced Santa Claus is real, and that she has to catch him on camera. And through some wacky plot machinations, they end up in the back of Santa's sled, and they crash. And oh no, if he does not get to every house at the end of the night, then Christmas is ruined. And that's the... I've never seen this kind of story before. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There's a ticking clock and everything. Exactly. (laughs) And here's the other weird thing. It implies that, like... So there's a ticking clock, but then there's also he has to get a certain level of Christmas spirit. Once he crashes and he can't deliver presents anymore, like Christmas spirit goes down to like 19%. He's got a little watch monitoring like the worldly Christmas spirit. And it's like, okay, wh- why? <laughs> like, why? Is- well, that's great. John, that's fine. I loved Elf too. So. <laughs> and he also implies like the only night that he never was able to deliver 
Christmas presents to everyone resulted in like the Dark Ages. That's what he implies. <laughs> okay. So we're like we're getting into like pot- and the bubonic plague. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really what they should have said. It's like half a third of the world will die <laughs> with a, with a disease if I don't d- deliver every present tonight. Exactly. So now we're getting into like apocalyptic territory. The stakes are raised if he mm-hmm. does not get to every home. Okay. So, uh, yeah, and so through some wacky plot machinations, they, they, they inevitably team up, even though they're just two simple humans. And obviously, Kurt Russell... Hum- humans? Humans is... is <laughs> Santa Claus not a human? Or? No, Santa, Greg, is Santa Claus species? is a demigod in this movie. And that's ah, okay. because, A, he's played by Kurt Russell, you know, the closest mm-hmm. we'll get to a demigod in man form. Um, <laughs> but also, I wish it kind of played up that whimsy a little bit. This is the, you know, obviously he's the best part of the movie, but also it's great the way he kind of interacts with normal people because a, he literally knows everybody. So it, when mm-hmm. he comes across someone, he's like, Tommy, I remember five, when you were five, you wanted that fire truck and here it is. And he literally pulls it out of his jacket. <laughs> okay. He, he knows everybody and he knows their like exact wish. So at one point, you know, once they crash the sled, like his first instinct is like, we'll just hatch a ride with somebody. So he goes into a diner is like, guys, I'm Santa Claus and I need help. And so he's literally like <laughs> going around to everybody trying to solicit help. And he's not really bribing them, but again, he knows everybody and he knows exactly what their wish is. So he like sits down, asks for someone's help. He's like, look, there's in it something for you. Rookie Mickey Mantle card. And he literally has like a mint condition <laughs> Mickey Mantle card in his possession because he's Santa. Okay. And I yeah. wish the movie kind of, played more with that whole idea of the fact that he can literally conjure any present up from anywhere and the fact that he knows everybody. And again, he gets to play Elvis at one point, you know, he gets thrown in the slammer through some wacky plot machinations and, you know, mm-hmm. to raise the Christmas spirit, you know, he conjures up a whole band and, you know, he does like a little, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town, you know, classic Elvis Presley pastiche. And, Again, those moments are fun, but then we got to go back to the kids. We got to go back to the elves. You know, they they get involved in the criminal element, and it's just uh, they, they they tried they tried really hard. <laughs> Did they, John? I, again, if the movie you said you said Kurt Russell was the best part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Is that a high bar to clear? <laughs> what are you saying? Are you saying Kurt Russell <laughs> is not worthy of every praise? It, uh, no, of course he is. I'm just saying the movie isn't, and I think you're giving it way too much time and credit to be honest. I, something that you know just... what, Greg? Look, they made it for twelve dollars. All right, it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair that right. they had to put it on Netflix. Yes, I know. Every movie is a miracle, technically. Mm-hmm. So exactly. I'll, I'll give them credit for. Uh, I won't say try, but <laughs> they they put some effort in. So mm-hmm. look, they know what they they know what they wanted to make. They just weren't super successful with it. So. Uh, Credit where credit's due. I'm not good at this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've already recommended The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, following that, when when people are on the Netflix queues, should they add The Christmas Chronicles? Uh, morbid curiosity. That would be the only thing that would bring <laughs> you to this movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, fine. And you've run out of episodes of How The Chilling you? Adventures of Sabrina, Teenage Witch. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> I can't believe you would do that to our audience. Terrible. Oh. <laughs> Awful. Awful person. Greg. Greg. Look, I'll see I'll see Wreck It Ralph 2 eventually, all right? It's just I don't know. I don't know why you subjected our audience to this. I mean they, I don't know why Netflix is doing it. I mean <laughs> Greg, we live in a cruel, cruel world, okay? Indeed. You know what? It sounds like you could use some Christmas spirit. <laughs> I know we're just where to get it. Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>
Facebook and Twitter and all of social media. Oh, oh yeah. We got, we've got Christmas beer for days. Yes, we do. Oh, man, everybody's ready. The holiday season. I feel like there were even fewer complaints this year that, like, well, it's barely Thanksgiving and we're already doing Christmas stuff. I feel like people are, are ready for Christmas. They want it. They want it badly. <laughs> I think it's because they were waiting to see what Melania Trump did to the White House again this year, which, oh, ah, boy, yeah. it is atrocious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was going to say that that's a little bit, maybe a little too topical for our podcast, oh. but it's going to come back every year. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. Especially in a second term, because Donald Trump will be elected again. Oh, so. no. Greg, why? <laughs> We're trying to keep the Christmas spirit up. Come on. <laughs> You're right. So if you want some Christmas spirit, go ahead and like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and we'll we'll share with you some joyous content. How about that? Yes. We're going we're gonna to be spreading Christmas cheer for all to hear through all our social yeah. platforms. And Mm -hmm. once you're done with that, you can go to your podcast service of choice, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Player FM, and you can can give us a subscription, and you can rate us five stars. And that'll help others spread the joy of aspiring snogs. Yeah. And don't forget, this is the spirit of giving. So we've given you our thoughts on these five movies, um, some consumer advice as well. Why don't you gift us some suggestions and feedback uh, via our email, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. Indeed. We are looking mm-hmm. for comments and recommendations, and we just want to hear from you, our fans, yeah. our fellow aspiring snobs. Yeah. And if I can keep this, uh, to keep us on a roll here <laughs> with the christmas theme stuff, have we got a present for you next week? Oh, boy. Because we... it's a big blind spot. <laughs> We are finally sitting down and watching, in its entirety, Raiders yeah. of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I, I will cop to not being able to remember seeing... Well, obviously everybody remembers the big moments, but mm-hmm. I can't remember seeing this movie from beginning to end. It was always on TV, I remember that much. So, But also, you know, again, this is a, it's, it's a great intersectionality with uh, Judaism and Christian messaging. You know, the <laughs> wrath of God as it comes down and, you know, kills Nazis. It's great. <laughs> yep, the reemergence of Nazis in our society. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, I think it speaks a lot to 2018, really. Yeah, of course. It's the perfect movie for our time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everybody can look forward to that. Yes, Just hearing two idiots yammer on about a movie, as you, as you always say, we probably should have seen by now. Mm-hmm. But that's that. That's the goal of the podcast. Yep, <laughs> indeed. Well, thank you everybody for listening, and until next time, keep on aspiring, there, partner. <laughs> <laughs> do do do. And then yes, and we'll hear more from Buster Scruggs, <laughs> the very same. Cool, cool water. <laughs> Old Ann and I, with throats burned dry and souls that cry for water. Cool, clear water. Dan, can you see that big green tree where the water's running free and it's waiting there for you and me? The nights are cool and I'm a fool Each star's a pool of water Cool water